Radio Mano Papachango. interesting week for me i was on joe rogan's podcast tuesday which always makes things fascinating there's always a bit of a a storm online after i'm on his show uh sometimes i i even go back and read the comments on youtube um just because it's you know i i think it's kind of like uh the wim hof method for the ego it's uh it's like getting into a, a psychological ice bath to read all the different ways that people can despise you. <laughs> it's really amazing. I mean to be honest, it's it's also uh yeah, there are a lot of really kind people who say, Oh yeah, my favorite guest and you know, shit like that. This guy's interesting and it's cool, but um the the vitriol is is amazing, and uh, it's interesting to, as an exercise, to read that stuff, you know, and see. It's almost like um, I don't know when you put a you write an article. Like when I was working on Sex at Dawn, I had a blog on Psychology Today, and every once in a while, I would throw up an argument and just see what people attacked, you know, to see if there was a weak spot or whatever, or what people perceived as weak areas in the argument. Similarly, it's interesting to see what people perceive in me in a three-hour conversation with Joe as being worthy of attack. Like some of the stories that I I tell, people are like, yeah, that's bullshit. You can tell he's lying on that. Or other people say, uh, one was like, yeah, this guy, every story he tells, you can tell it was just designed to get hippie chicks to want to have sex with him. <laughs> I don't know. I told some story about killing a rabbit by accident when I was a kid with a, I threw an apple or something at it. And and people think I'm making that up. Like, why would I make that up? Like, how does that make me seem cool to accidentally kill a rabbit when I was 10 years old? You know, I I don't know. Anyway, it's an interesting, uh, it's an interesting exercise. I recommend it to everybody. Uh, this week's guest, by the way, very interesting woman by the name of Wednesday, Wednesday Martin. She's a, a serious best-selling author. Uh, let's see, I'll read from her webpage. Wednesday Martin has worked as a writer and social researcher in New York City for over two decades. An instant number one New York Times bestseller. Her memoir, Primates of Park Avenue, is a hilarious, touching, and insightful look into the exotic world of Manhattan motherhood. Uh... Wednesday is, I, I met her because we were in New York a little while ago and she contacted us to see if she could um, talk to Cassie and me about um, Sex at Dawn for a book that she was working on called Untrue, which uh, Cassie's reading now and uh, I've taken a look at it. It looks really interesting. It's coming out in September, I think. And um yeah, I had to run off and do something. I think I was meeting Duncan for dinner that night. And 
so we chatted a little bit and then I left and Cassie and Wednesday hung out and had a really good time. And I think in the end, I'm not getting quoted at all in the book. It's just Casilda, which is perfect. Wonderful. And uh, anyway, uh, Wednesday was out here in L.A. Uh, last week and came by and we did a podcast and I thought I was going to hold it until the book came out. But I think at this point we're friends. And so we'll just do another one when the book comes out, because I really like hanging out with her and uh, she and Cassie really have a similar kind of crazy, smart vibe, which I, I enjoy. So we'll go do another one with her before the book comes out. And, and that'll be the sort of promotional podcast. This one will just be a hangout and get to know Wednesday Martin a little bit podcast. Um, yeah, so that's that's what's going on here. Uh, what else can I tell you about? Uh, it, it's just that the Rogan thing is really interesting because... It just it's one of those aspects of my life now that I could never have imagined was coming. And uh, in the sense that like Joe and I are pretty good friends. We've we've hung out quite a bit. Uh, I really like him. He, you know, he's not the guy I'm going to call from the airport to get a ride or, you know, call from jail to bail me out. But, um, you know, he's he's a good guy and I've spent quite a bit of time with him and uh, really we enjoy each other's company. Um, but Joe is also like someone who lives in a very strange world that I don't live in. You know, the world of the uber rich, the world of, you know, someone who's got a dozen sports cars and, you know does his podcast all week to an audience in the millions and then flies to Brooklyn and does stand up in a sold out theater. And then, you know, is recording his Netflix special in two weeks. And then he's, you know, going hunting with Anthony Bourdain or something. It's just like he, he's on some level that's alien to me. And yet we hang out. And when we do hang out, it's almost always in his studio with microphones on. So it's this weird sort of hybrid of a friendship and a performance. So, you know, like I was talking to my buddy Simon, Simon Rex, who you guys know, and uh, I told him I was going to be on Joe's show. And Simon's like, oh, man, are you nervous? Are you preparing? I'm like, what, what do you prepare? What is there to be nervous about? I'm just... From my perspective, it's like I'm going to, oh, it's like I'm having lunch with my buddy tomorrow. We're going to hang out and catch up. I don't know how to prepare for that. You know, I'm aware of the fact that I guess in some way it's a performance in the sense that I can't just fall asleep or, you know, I try not to be super boring or anything. <laughs> but any conversation is a performance in that respect. Um, it's just, it, it's a very strange thing because it's not like I'm giving a presentation, you know, it's not a TV show. It's not scripted. It's not, we don't, Joe and I don't, before the mics go on, we don't say, okay, look, here's, it's not like a talk show where it's like, okay, you know, why don't you start off with the anecdote about killing the bunny when you were 10 and then we'll, you know, we'll move over and we'll, we'll get into, um, talk a bit about, you know, Spanish driver's licenses and then we'll go to, um, you know, whether or not chimpanzees can swim or whatever. <laughs> it's like, we don't, it's not worked out. It, the shit just happens, you know? And yet there, because there's an audience, 
I guess retroactively in some way there's a performative aspect to it um yeah it reminds me of the novel uh slaughterhouse five by kurt vonnegut fantastic book by the way if you're looking for a very interesting novel to read that's you know one of the top 20 novels i've ever read i think very fascinating and there's and it, it's funny and and bizarre it, it, it's a real kind of almost psychedelic kind of experience reading that um anyway there's a there's a section where one of the characters gets whisked away by aliens to another planet and he's he's placed in a dome with this movie star and i think they're they're expected to breed it's kind of like um they become uh zoo um attractions for these aliens and there's like this weird sort of like he's trying to develop a friendship or a relationship with this woman and meanwhile like there are all these invisible beings that are sort of monitoring them and applauding at the right moments and stuff and it's it reminds me of that a little bit like because it's just joe me and jamie sitting in that room and yet there are these you know, million invisible beings hovering around us, watching and judging and analyzing and fact-checking. And yeah, it's a strange thing. Very strange. Anyway, okay, that's all I'm going to talk about that. Otherwise, Casilda is in Mozambique. She flew to Mozambique to hang out with her daughter and meet her granddaughter, who was just born about six months ago. And uh, that's fantastic. Very, very cute kid, so I'm very happy about that. I've got a lot of other stuff to talk about, but I don't want to take up too much time at the beginning of this, so I will, uh, I'll save all that for Aroma, which will be for the Patreon contributors, all of whom I love. Thank you. There are, uh, I can tell you exactly how many there are, because it was 1111 yesterday, and then someone sent me an email saying, I became the 1,112th supporter and I almost felt bad about ruining that beautiful number. So there are 1112 Patreon supporters every one of whom is a wonderful beautiful being uh emanating light in my direction and I thank you for that. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, Patreon's a good way to do it. patreon.com just look up my name or tangentially speaking and as little as a dollar a month, people, a dollar a month, that's 25 cents a week. That's two bits per podcast or less when I do more than one a week, which I often do. I mean, really, a quarter, if you're getting like a couple of hours of enjoyment and edification and company and whatever other value you find in this, are you really going to tell me it's not worth a quarter? I mean, geez, do people even bend over to pick up quarters anymore? I don't know. If uh, if you can afford it, I really appreciate it. It lets me know that uh, this is worthwhile and, and there are people out there that appreciate enough to spend a few minutes throwing up their credit card info on this website and it'll just automatically um, pull out whatever you say. Five bucks a month, 10 bucks a month, 20 bucks a month. There There are a few people who are contributing 50 bucks a month at this time, which is really great. I'm not getting rich on this, folks. I'm not going to have a dozen 
sports cars. You can be guaranteed of that. And at least 10% of what I get from Patreon goes directly to homeless people in LA and people I meet on the, on the way who need some help. So there's that. Um, that's it. Amazon affiliate link at my webpage is also very helpful. Also, people who have left um, reviews on iTunes, that's fantastic and very helpful. Reviews, if you've got a copy of Tangentially Reading, which they're selling really well, actually. And Joe was very kind. I didn't ask him to promote it at all, but I brought him a copy because he's featured in it, of course. And uh, he mentioned it in the intro. So that's been very helpful. If you have a copy of it and you like it, um, throw up an Amazon review. That's always helpful. I think they're... 30 or so of those already on Amazon, and that's really cool. If you want a signed copy, go to my webpage, chrisryanphd.com, or thatchrisryan.com, or tangentiallyspeaking.com. It's all the same. And uh, you'll see where you can order a copy. I'll sign it, inscribe it, and we'll send it to you. Uh, all right, I'm going to shut the fuck up now, and uh, we're going to talk to Wednesday Martin. I'm going to play you out with a tune by a friend of the podcast, Joel Havea. He he and I have been in touch for years now, I think. Um, He was going to come down and watch the eclipse with us, but he didn't make it. So we've got a date for the next eclipse. Uh, This is from his latest album. It's called One Hand Clapping. Uh, And I think he did it together with Rowan Davidson, if that's right. I'm not sure. My notes are confusing. The song is called Two Sticks. And uh, it reminds me of one of my favorite lines from the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Uh, I think the song is Don't Stop. And there's a line where they say, music, the great communicator, used two sticks to make it in the nature. I really like that song. Some interesting lyrics in that. Anyway, this is... uh, Two Sticks by Joel Havea. Check him out when you get a chance. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Hope you enjoy this conversation with Wednesday Martin. Alone on a beach far from ourselves and far from sight. She took two sticks, put them together and lit up the night. She has two sticks and a little kindling, but eventually got a spark. Oh, she has two sticks, and I was thinking in that moment she was a star. She was a star. Was living a life more trapped than free. I was stuck inside. She took my hands and walked across this land with me And let's sleep outside She has two sticks and a little kindling But eventually got a spark Oh, she has two sticks And I was thinking in that moment she was a star Grab my guitar all that cold brings me back But only so far It's clarity that memories lack But it's okay To run away in my mind Anytime I need 
Oh, she wants to stay. And a little kidney can eventually get a spark. Oh, she wants to stay. And I was thinking in that moment she was a star. Oh, she wants to I'm sitting I'm sitting in my living room in Topanga with Wednesday Martin, author of the number one New York Times bestseller, Primates of Park Avenue, among, that. among other things. <laughs> <laughs> so I I am a New York Times bestseller, but you're a number one New York Times bestseller. I don't I don't want to rub it in, but I'm an instant number one. But New you don't have Times an bestseller. AVN award. I don't. And so. that is you know, maybe with this book I'll get there. You need to have a PhD to get one of those. I do have for a PhD. Best. Oh, do you? That's yeah, right. Your doctor, your anthropology or complete Cult- cultural studies and complete, right? From Yale, no less. I so we can just call each other doctor for this whole interview. It'll be like an episode of Frasier. It, <laughs> it kind of already feels <laughs> well, like. Well, Cassie one. and I do that all the time. Excuse me, doctor. Did Does you say she something, make you doctor? Call her doctor? She's a real doctor, though. She, well, she's see, an MD. I know. Yeah. I admire that. Yeah, as me you too. know, I love your wife. That makes two of us. Yep. There you go. She's she's great. She she was a big inspiration for my book. Really? Yes, as were you. Hmm. For my new book. Wow. Yeah. You which, both which were is Sex at Dawn. Untrue. Because you think untrue. Sex at Dawn is just total bullshit. No. So that's the <laughs> You know <laughs> that's what? The inspiration. I, I mean, we should have more foreplay here, but I will say <laughs> that because <laughs> this is a first date but I loved, with microphones. What, what yeah. I loved about Sex at Dawn was everything. Uh, that oh. you guys were crossing over the cooperative breeding hypothesis hmm. and the fact that we evolved as flexible sexual and social strategists and you got everybody thinking and talking about that. And I was kind of trying to do that with Primates of Park Avenue. I was trying to use anthropology to help people decode their own lives in mm. that in that case motherhood right yeah so so have you read the continuum concept no oh you'd love that that's a really interesting book it's a i didn't mean to derail you there but. <laughs> <laughs> that's why that's why this is called you tangentially kinda speaking. always derail me oh, i'm sorry it's Part of your charm. I'm sorry. That's bad. <laughs> Wait, are we going to sit like this now? Sit, sit however I'm gonna sit you want. I'm going to take off my want. shoes, but I don't have a pedicure. There you go. Well, neither do I. Okay, good. You're lucky that- if I've trimmed my toenails in the last six months. It's all right. Getting all Howard Hughes on you here. Uh, <laughs> well, it, this does feel very isolated and um, yeah. elegant. Elegant. I thought yeah. you were going to say like treacherous or it feels treacherous. High too. risk, like no one will find your body up here. More people should know how you live. I think a lot of people know how I live who listen to this podcast. They do because you know if okay. they follow me on social media, they see the van, they see us yes. out in the middle of nowhere. Right. You know, and and um, yeah, I mean, you mean the fact that it's kind of remote and. Yeah, Simple. you're you're true to your code. You're a couple of intellectual nomads. That's but this true. is um, what am I trying to say? This is abundance. This is a version yeah. of abundance that yeah. more people 
would probably the primates of Park Avenue would right. be very happy probably and have much less stressful lives if they tried out this version of abundance. So I think what Wednesday's referring to is like where we live here is a is a one room cabin basically with sliding glass doors separating the bedroom. Uh-huh. Yeah, I, I I have always I've never owned a house. I've only owned two vehicles in my life, two cars, one car in this van. This is the second vehicle I've ever owned. Um, like I, I, at a very early age, I realized that there are two major currencies in life, money and time, and one can be replaced and the other can't. And so I've been very cautious about ever selling time for money. I mean, I know right. that's what we all have to do, but it just always seems like a bad deal to me, you know, because you've got one yeah. irreplaceable resource being bought with one that's easily replaced. It's easily replaced. And um, you really feel that shift, I think, when you go between New York and L.A. Mm. I think a lot of people, through the lens of anthropology, you know, obviously they're two really different cultures. Yeah. But people talk about quality of life here, and it's very real. And um, I think we're caring about it more and more. We're starting to see that those trade-offs. Yeah. That don't serve us. Do you think we're, we we're to... at a unique cultural moment in that respect? Are we at the end of the notion that money buys happiness? The end of affluence. Are we? I think we're getting there. Yeah. When I look at how mainstream concepts like mindfulness mm. have become, for example. Minimalism. I think, and what is that new book that's coming out? Is it called Abundance Without Affluence about the Kung? It's right over on the shelf there. When is that coming out? No, it's out. Oh, it's It's out out. already. Yeah, yeah. Or maybe it's in my Kindle, but I've read it recently. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that... Well, in the original Affluence Society, Marshall Salins, that was in the 60s, I think. Mm -hmm. I think we're moving in that direction, I think, with the growing urgency about climate change, small houses, Mm. slow parenting, slow sex. Van life. Van life. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, And I remember writing about the giving pledge um, when I was writing about the rich people that I studied in Manhattan, you know, about the giving pledge that billionaires, usually men, pledge to give away all their money before they die or uh, a big amount of it. Um, and it's sort of, um, it confers status um, in Manhattan and I think across the United States to be one of the mostly male billionaires who takes the giving pledge. Hmm. You're in a very elite club. So what is the marker of elite status that you're saying, I'm so rich I don't even need money? Yeah. It's when sort of, I'm dead. Right, right, right. <laughs> I'm dead. Uh, so, yeah. so I think I think in a weird way, the giving pledge is a symptom mm. of that trend toward valuing time over money, quality of life over money. Let's see how it all shakes out, because we did elect, after all, a gold-plated 
president. That's what I mean. It seems to be like he's the epitome of someone who's won at that game, and yet we can all see what a loser he is. At least, not not all of us clearly, but all of us with uh, you know the wherewithal to see such things. I, you know, I kind of feel you, you and I before we turned the mics on, we were commiserating about publishing and talking about you know strategic moves as authors and all the business of publishing and change, change. And the industry and all that i kind of felt like you know i i delayed a lot in getting sex at dawn finished and in the end i'm glad i did because i feel like the book came out at the right cultural moment to yeah. catch a wave boy and to start a fire did right. you ever start a fire and and i think the tinder wasn't quite dry two or three years before and so it wouldn't have happened who knows but so what you're saying is procrastination is good <laughs> <laughs> i i try to recognize the flow the, the you know the the dow of right. of things and and not you know there's um I think it's a Navajo saying it's easier. It's easiest to ride a horse in the direction it's going, you know? So I try not to get into resistance and fighting and pushing against things. Mm -hmm. Generally, I find there's a wisdom in things going the way they're Mm -hmm. going. Um, Hmm. But what I was going to say is that with Sex at Dawn, I feel like part of that cultural moment was that a critical mass of people were at a point where they were willing to say, you know what? monogamy's not working i look Mm -hmm. around i see so many people so many broken marriages so many families that are fractured Mm -hmm. so many relationships in my own life and people i know that are that are Mm -hmm. suffering under the unrealistic expectations of monogamy so i'm willing to read a book that has a different explanation right i I feel like that was the moment i feel like you really hit the moment right so now i'm thinking with this civilized to death that we were talking about earlier and all the procrastination and the delays, I'm feeling like, what's the moment for this book? And I kind of think it's the moment of the critical mass of people saying, you know what? Civilization's not working. Civilization isn't working for me. I did everything I was supposed to do. I got a job. I got a house. I got the cars. I got the kids. I got the, I got it all. And I'm miserable. People are saying 12,000 years is long enough. Do you think so? Or is that just in our little bubble of New York intellectual whatever? I think it's, if it is just in the bubble of New York and L.A., we know that it moves toward the center. And I remember um, an anthropologist named Steve Josephson telling me, just to um, follow up on what you're saying about being in the right moment when people are ready to listen. I remember him telling me that a lot of anthropologists, he happens to study um, polygyny among Mormons. And he was telling me that he gets a lot of information by seeing what's happening in Hollywood. So he was focusing on women who had partners or husbands who were younger than they were and predicting that because it was happening in Hollywood, it was something that we would see increasingly in mm. the U.S. And I haven't looked at, you know, the demographics of that, but it certainly does seem that as women close the income gap and as women have access to reproductive technologies and they don't have to be in a heterosexual marriage to have a child anymore, they're going to be making choices based on 
what they want mm. versus making strategic trade-offs. Yeah. And I think, wow, I just took us on such a tangent. It's and a good I'm, one. I'm trying to remember how to, I'm sending up a flare. So we were the, talking about the, the end. So I, the cultural moment. Yeah. Are, have mm-hmm. we, you know, that great Arthur Miller line, an era can, can be considered over when its basic illusions have been exhausted. Right. Right. So is the basic illusion of civilizational progress exhausted? I think we're getting there and all the sort of symptoms that you and I were just talking about reading shows that people are not happy with the received script necessarily. I mean, that's one of the ways we can look at activism around gun control, around Black Lives Matter, Mm. that we could probably read it as a this seismic cultural shift in which what's one of the things fueling it is the refusal to accept a received script. Mm. And it would be fascinating through your lens, the lens of what you do and you and Casilda do and how the three of us look at things to consider that maybe this 12,000 year post plow ecology uh, is really radically changing. And which really ties into your work as well, because that plow represents the, the subjugation of women, right? When the plow Absolutely. entered is when women lost all value. As Helen Fisher says, yeah. the plow was the worst thing that ever happened to women. Yeah, She wasn't kidding. Yeah. And I love how she says that in her TED Talk. And yes, it is an incredible thing to think that our received notions of female sexuality are so informed by the plow and uh, fruit flies, <laughs> right? Yeah. Hey, ladies, that's yeah. that's why we are where yeah. we are. Yeah, uh, fruit with, flies with our sexuality. Do female fruit flies have orgasms? Angus Bateman wanted us to believe that they didn't benefit from mating multiply, but yeah. but they do. Yeah. And and. And what? what? <laughs> <laughs> and it's crazy to think that the most personal choices that a woman can make are were determined by oxen and draft animals in the plow. Yeah. But that's you and I take the very long view of things. You and Casilda yeah. and I. Yeah. We take the very long view, and the very long view of female sexuality is that it our current experience of it has been formed by these forces that are mind-blowingly strange to consider. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, okay, let's talk about your book, Untrue. Coming out when? September? September 18th, September 18th. 18th. All right. It's a fall book. Back to school. Fall book. That See, that means the publisher <laughs> thinks it's going to be a big seller. That's when the big guns come Uh-oh, out no in the pressure. fall. No pressure. No pressure or anything. Yeah. It's going to be another instant. Well, by the way, what is instant? You're, you're an instant number one. That means your book was, it debuted at number one? Do you remember instant potatoes and instant oatmeal yeah, when we were I children? Do. I, yeah, I Okay. Well, it. I think it has something so all about convenient just add water <laughs> I don't I don't know I think it was because an op-ed came out before the book was published and for all I know it was maybe there weren't enough books or um it was backward I don't know what that oh, all means but it's good but it just sounds kind of fun it sounds great and it does make me seem like I write fast food um or 
Or just that, you know, you, you hit the bullseye, like first, first dart, right? I mean, okay, so untrue. Why nearly? I, I see you're getting embarrassed. People can't, there's no video, so they don't see how uncomfortable I'm making <laughs> you with all this hyperbolic praise. I'm from the Midwest. Which Are is, you? Yeah, see, we, I think of you as a New Yorker, but you're... It, I have yeah. been in New York for enough years that I think that I'm a New Yorker, but New Yorkers, I don't think, would ever give that to me. By the way, I know you're desperately um, sick of answering this question, no. but... Wednesday. Were you born, conceived? No, what, what happened on a, Wednesday? Wednesday is a nickname. Oh. My legal name is oh, Wendy. Oh. And I had a boyfriend in college. He's actually, he actually just uh, had a quite well-received book come out called The Evolution of Beauty. Hmm. His name is Richard Prum. And he nicknamed me Wednesday in college. Wow. And it stuck. So I'm grateful to him it's for that. It's a cool name. Yeah, I feel more like a Wednesday than a Wendy. <laughs> All right, untrue. Why nearly everything we believe about women, lust, and infidelity is wrong and how the new science can set us free. It's just a little tiny title for Don't you. Don't you love those? They just pack everything into the subtitle. They pack everything into that subtitle. So you've got women, lust, infidelity is wrong. Everything. It's all wrong. <laughs> And the new science can set us free. Doesn't it sound it's like, like a TED Talk? It's to like set Martin us free Luther part. King wrote a book about female sexuality. <laughs> uh, we should. Have I video had a wet dream. We should have video for this. Definitely. <laughs> we definitely. <laughs> but should. then I'd have to brush my hair. Oh. Yes. It or is wear a, a hat. It is a long subtitle because I felt like it was a big job. Yeah. I felt like it was a big job to describe these amazing female scientists who are changing the way we think. So that's about that's the focus of the book: the scientists um, the who book, are changing it, it, the, things. The book is several things. Uh, on the one hand, it's a first-person exploration of our biases against women who are untrue. Um, untrue meaning not owned by a man. Meaning. Women who are wayward, we might use the term promiscuous, they commit what we might call infidelity, although you and I prefer the term extra pair. Copulation. Copulation. EPCs. <laughs> EPCs. Have you committed another EPC, <laughs> you dirty, dirty girl? So in part, it's a first-person exploration of things like um, I went to an all-day workshop on consensual non-monogamy with Mark Kaup, which oh. was fascinating. I went to an all-women's sex party called Skirt Club, um, and I interviewed women who were willing to talk to me about stepping out, cheating, being on the DL, or being openly non-monogamous. So that's one aspect of the book. And the other aspect of the book is I kind of think of it as a valentine to the experts, most of them women, um, like your wife and the sex researchers, Meredith Chivers and mm. Marta Miana, uh, the primatologist Amy Parrish, who mm. studies bonobos, sure. Sarah Hurdy. I was going to ask if you We call her the goddess, Sarah. right? You Sarah is wonderful. She's just a wonderful um interdisciplinary thinker who's used the comparative method to blow up really everything we ever thought about parenting and the pair bond and um, being female. And yeah. um, so I wanted to, and also sex researchers that people might not have heard of, like Gail Wyatt, 
um, or June Dobbs Butts, um, cultural commentators like Florence Kennedy. Mm. Um, I wanted to, you know, pay tribute to them once I learned about their work. So the book is a, a mashup of that kind of Valentine and my own personal journey exploring, you know, what is infidelity? What does it mean to be a woman who, who veers from the social script, which is still very much that women should be monogamous because we are presumed to be more naturally monogamous. So what's the current thinking then on this sort of very basic biological argument that, look, women are more vulnerable because a woman's pregnant and breastfeeding and so on. So of course she's going to want a male to take care of her. So she's, of course, she's going to be selective. Why would she be promiscuous? She's only got that one egg. And so. Right. So as you know, Robert Trivers really um, popularized that notion, um, which really emerged from Darwin's observations that the female of every species, according to him, tends to be more naturally chaste and coy and choosy right whereas darwin also wrote about how males tended to have more robust sexual appetites and sex drives and to be less discerning and but then more intelligent and then and then we had angus bateman come along yeah. in the 40s and do his studies with fruit flies and the take-home message from those studies was that's right, Darwin was right. Males benefit from mating multiply. They just want to spread their cheap seed around, sperm's a dime a dozen. And females are indeed, as Darwin uh, told us they were, they're choosy and coy, and they tend more naturally to monogamy because they need one male uh, to invest um, all their energy. But of course, then males and females are in this essential conflict, right? The female wants one great guy and the guy wants to uh, have sex with everything that's not nailed down. And so, so that's not true, yeah. you're saying? <laughs> so as you it know, sounds convincing. as you also know, Patricia Gowady, a oh, wonderful um, UCLA biologist, uh -huh. blew that apart. You'll correct me. It was 2012 or 2013 uh, that she revisited Darwin's uh, great and oft-cited, I believe that it's been cited over 3,000 times, Bateman's study about um, fruit flies was has been cited, you know, as much as any scientific study, probably. Yeah. So Patricia Goatti thought to revisit it and try to replicate his experiment, and she could not. And I don't know why that wasn't bigger news, mm. except that it's so distressing for people yeah. to swerve from a cultural narrative that we're so invested in. We're so invested oh, in this yeah. idea that women want one guy and we have a costly, choosy, finicky egg and yeah. guys have all this sperm to spare. So what and did they she find? Want. She found So she found that females do in fact benefit from mating multiply and that rates of reproductive success between females and males for fruit flies were about equal and and now we know that um you know depending on what we're reading but if we're reading some of the newer 
data that we see that there is not this gap in reproductive success between males and females. And we also see that it was never a good strategy um, for men to just mate and run. Um, You know, in many species, offspring do better when they have paternal investment, not just maternal investment. Um, Sperm, as you know, is costly to produce. It has all this stuff in it that's not easy to produce. And we know that there's a phenomenon called sperm depletion. So as it turns out in many species, males are quite choosy Mm. and discerning about mate choice. So we had this idea that was the engine of not just our thinking, but how we lived our lives, how we raised children, uh, how we uh, led our sex lives. And the engine um, was not what we thought it was. Isn't that fascinating how you can go back and discredit the original study, but it doesn't matter because it's become part of the cultural narrative. That's right. I run up against that all the time with the the, um, idea that hunter-gatherers, our ancestors were old at 30. Right. Or that, oh, that their lives were so hard. Not really. It was pretty good. You gathered a little bit. Once in a while, you got a diker or something, but really it was mostly shaw roots or tubers, depending on where you lived. And you could, you could gather that stuff. Not, you know, it wasn't a huge, horrible effort. It wasn't like being a day trader on Wall Street. <laughs> that That's really awful. And, of course, the other thing that people uh, don't want to understand about hunter-gatherers, and I guess we could kind of pin this on Irvin DeVore um, with his man-the-hunter hypothesis, but meat among many uh, untouched hunter-gatherer populations is, you know, not a big component of diet Mm. it's mostly what is gathered and guess who does the gathering the girls the girls women do and so the other thing that people don't really understand about our evolutionary prehistory is that women were the shit and were providing most of the calories for the band yeah and so they had a very important voice socially and politically if you want to say politically and interpersonally and they had a lot of autonomy and a lot of self-determination a lot of leverage a lot of leverage and i think marjorie shostak really got at that in nisa the life and words of a a beautiful book woman i wish everybody would read it i wish every young woman who considers Mm. herself a feminist would read it because it gives you uh, such a great historic and prehistoric sense of how far women have come and how far we haven't come. Um, Marjorie Shostak was doing a PhD in anthropology at Harvard, yeah, I think. Yeah, she taught it. With Richard Wrangham. I think they were married. Uh, well, she... With Rich- was it Richard Wrangham? No. I think so. It was someone who's still around. Oh, okay. I don't know if she was married to Wrangham. I thought that she's... I, I don't. I know that Richard Wrangham team taught a class with Barbara Smuts at the University of oh, Michigan, but I don't oh. know who. Well, I, I could be getting that wrong. To. Um, but she but was, it was a married, long time she ago. She was married to another anthropologist, and they went to Botswana together right. to study the Kung. And right. and she, part of Nisa is is so great because she talks about how compromised anthropologists were, and how the Kung mm. had been kind of not heavily studied, but but she and her husband were not the first people 
people by a long shot to oh, study them. Yeah. And they were coming in sort of at the end of the the research period. And by then the Kung knew to ask for cigarettes and, you know, ask for stuff in exchange for the information they yeah. were providing. I mean, it's a fascinating book. When she was trying to do, if if I remember correctly, she wanted to do a study on women's experience among that culture and she was finding women were very reticent to share intimate details of their sex lives and so on and then she met this one woman nisa who got what she was trying to do and was like okay you're from another world you want to understand my world sit down i'll tell you i'll tell you i'll I'll talk into your machine that grabs my voice (laughs) and she was a great narrator a great storyteller yeah and very complicated and and Marjorie Shostak really sometimes didn't know whether she should believe Nisa. It was, it's a great story in so many ways, that book, because it talks about the anthropologist's dilemmas. Mm. Can I trust my informants? We don't really call them that anymore. Can, um, you know, can I believe this story? Um, And I think that Marjorie Shostak went into it thinking if I understood her forward correctly and her introduction correctly, I think that she went into it all thinking, I'm going to find this great common narrative between women worldwide. And what she ended up teaching all of us was the importance of environment and ecology in women's experiences, including uh, their experience of their sexuality, Mm. just how important environment and ecology are. But she did find that commonality. And the book is so, to me, it was so moving because the the sort of specifics of it are very alien to us, right? A hunter-gatherer in the Kalahari Desert. But the sort of general themes being a child falling in love the first time the drama of those early relationships right you know um having a child separating from the man she was with you know losing children nisa losing lost, death yeah nisa lost all her children mm. um none of them survived to adulthood i believe really and, and that she ended up being her parents i remember to our, to our earlier discussion about cooperative breeding and how you guys really crossed that into the mainstream i remember being being an undergraduate and reading about how Nisa, having lost all her children, became an auntie, you know, to her to her brother's so child, yeah. right? And and really took on raising that child yeah. very proudly and passionately as as what she was doing. Um, and so, in that way, Marjorie also Marjorie Shostak helped to start that conversation too. And the really interesting thing for me always about that book has been the stuff that Shostak got into about female sexuality, mm. and you know that Nisa was willing to narrate it, and what aspects of it were you know local and specific, and what was generalizable. And I think that. One of the great points that Marjorie Shostak made that you guys also made in Sex at Dawn is that if we look at hunter-gatherer populations, you know, they're not Edenic, but they can tell us a lot about ourselves because they're living the way, in general, 
that life was led in the Pleistocene. Well, I always say, if you want to understand why your dog is pissing on the carpet, <laughs> you're not going to go and study geese you're or not. fruit flies. That's you're right. going to go and look at wolves and That's maybe right. coyotes and foxes, something right. closely related. Yeah. So when people are talking about human mating behavior and they start getting into voles and swans, I'm like, hello, we've got chimps and bonobos yes. right next to us. Let's, and you're yeah. way over there yeah. talking about you know, marmots or something. Yeah, let's talk about hunter-gatherers and let's talk about our non-human relatives. Right, right. Right? Let's look close to home here. Let's look close to home. figure it out. I loved, um, you know, that Nisa narrated her sexuality and spilled a lot of secrets. Um, I loved how you can insult a man by saying he had a big dick. Yeah, that is a big insult. Yeah. Big genitals yeah. Was, was a big insult, right? <laughs> and we needed I want to live there. It's the, it's, the, <laughs> it's the plow that makes us fetishize big swinging dicks. Is that what it? Yeah. Literally and the, figuratively. Because of the horses and the donkeys and all that? I don't know. And just because masculinity, you know, along comes the plow and suddenly we just love uh, brawn. all about that. Yeah. And we love upper body strength and men are the shit and women are in the homes. It's very American, though. Cassie, when, when we're in America, she always laughs about lobsters. She calls American men lobsters because they're all upper body. You know, in Europe, you don't see that, that massive upper body development, you right. know, because soccer, you don't want that. You, you want a low want center that. of gravity and even professional yeah. soccer players, they right. look like normal people. Right. You they know, do. if you look really closely, look like their thighs people, are huge. Only better. Better and richer. <laughs> <laughs> and they run faster. Um, but yeah, it, it's funny how American sports tend to require these sort of bizarre, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like the, the distortions, yeah, bodily distortions. distortions. And I mean, when you think about that, it's almost like it, it tells a very important story. What mm. It tells a story about what we fetishize in this, in this culture and what's under pressure right now, which is brawn masculine yeah. brawn and what is it and we do it to women too right giant to, breast implants and the you yeah. know liposuction well, and butt implants you, and, yeah you know the stuff about waist hip ratio yeah that and you and i have fought the good fight about this when people try to say that that's an essential preference and natalie angier has written about this too when people try to universalize that preference mm. and Natalie Angier comes back and says, that's not true. You know, the Caro talk like women with big feet. Mm. Men don't always universally everywhere like women who are young and nubile and right. have a weird, uh, a distorted waist to hip ratio. If you go to other ecologies in the world where women have more power and to societies that are more egalitarian and less stratified, you don't see these weird fixations on the body. Yeah. And you don't see the weird uh, morphologies that we prefer here because our sexual preferences and our aesthetic preferences are very specific to a plow, a post-plow ecology. Yeah, which, but it's... But it's I mean, I certainly agree with that, but I think that 
for some reason it's accentuated in American society. Right, hyperbolically. Yeah, I mean the French and the Spanish. So sports is one of those niches in America where, you know, it's a hyper-masculine niche. And I think it's really interesting to your point about how the bodies get distorted. And it's sort of like, I think of it as a version of how there was all this legislation um, after we moved out of agriculture, all, we we kind of legislated these um, agricultural beliefs into our society. We didn't have child care so that women would have to still stay in the home like mm. they did in a cloud-based ecology. Mm, good point. Um, we didn't have protections against sexual discrimination in the workplace because we only valued what men were able to do, like factory work, and we thought, well, women shouldn't be doing that anyway. Right. Um, so, you know, and we could go on and on in this list. But yeah. so we we yeah. have created these spaces in our culture where brawn is still highly valued, but they're dying out. I can't wait to see what happens with football. Um, as we move into, you know, the tech era and as we move into an era where women are doing a good job, particularly um Caucasian women and Asian women are closing the income gap. You know, it's still uh, very wide for African-American women and Native American women. Um, but as at, we're also closing the educational gaps, it's going to be interesting to see what happens in these spaces where brawn uh, was fetishized. Hmm. The, the factory floor, um, the football field... Um, and I think part of what's happening with football right now, where Americans are finally getting behind the idea that football isn't all that, um, and that these traumatic brain injuries are intolerable, and that this isn't a trade-off we want to make anymore. Yeah. I think in a weird way that only people looking through the lens of anthropology might see it. Um, that's been fueled by female equality. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, it, it, it's it's interesting to see a society in which male physical strength is no longer a marketable item. But we're still so attached to it, and that's why we elected our gold-plated president. Because he's so big and strong. He, I mean, you know, he could only win, don't you think, in a particular cultural moment where a woman was running against him and... Americans had all of our backs against the wall. Hmm. And we were confronting the idea, really, of making a woman the most powerful man in the world. I don't, I don't interpret and, it that way. I interpret it, I mean, I'm sure that's part of it, for sure. But I also interpret it as a country that is sick to death of the um, status quo in Washington, which has become more and more corrupted and obviously ineffective. And so, you know, I think it's the Jesse Ventura hypothesis. Yeah. That, that I people guess just said enough of uh, another Bush, another Clinton, another the same, mm -hmm. same establishment. Right. And so I think if Bernie had been running against him, Bernie would have won because Bernie, you know, in, in a debate between Trump and Bernie, I think, 
Trump would have been exposed as the idiot he is. And you have to you have to wonder about how those things work together, right? Mm. Being being tired of establishment um, plus gender bias yeah. plus I'm. Yeah, and then, you know he's Jewish. Would have been the first Jewish president. Mm-hmm. There are all sorts of things we can't we can't know. But I'm enheartened by the fact. Is that a word? Enheartened. <laughs> I don't know, but it is. It is. But now. you know what I mean. And I like it. by the fact that a you know I don't remember what the numbers are, but millions of people who voted for Obama switched over to Trump. They're not racist, right? They're they're just saying enough already. I mean, I've got three Obama T-shirts. I haven't worn them in you know. 14 years or whatever it's been because I I thought he was going to change it. He didn't change shit. Now I'm not blaming him particularly. I know he had to the, but we don't need to talk about this. Let's talk about clitorises. Well, let's talk, you know, they're not unrelated. (laughs) What what is going to happen to what has happened and what is going to continue to happen to female sexuality under Sorry about that. That's all right. Is that your alarm or your husband calling? I don't know what that is. No one talks to my wife about clitorises except me. He could tell that we were about to (laughs) talk about clitorides and he wanted it to be on speakerphone (laughs) because he wants to know everything. Um, Here's the thing. What will happen to female sexuality under Trump and what is happening to it now? And I mean, it, it it is an intersectional dilemma. Yeah. Right? Because... Um, we just could writing this book I realized wow you know we're cooking an ecology where we're going to need another Florence Kennedy right away who's going to be our next Florence Kennedy who's going to be remind me of Florence Kennedy she's the um, African American woman um, who came up with every great quip you've ever heard probably about women's liberation she came up with the quip If men could get pregnant, abortion would be a sacrament. Mm. Um, She came up with, if you're not part of the solution, you're... Part of the problem? Exactly. I mean, every quip you can think of. Not the thing about fish and bicycles. Did she do that one? I hope she did. Women need men as much as fish need bicycles. A woman needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle. I've been insulted by that. It, It... well, don't let your feelings get in the way. It was, it was a, so she was, um, she spoke a lot with Gloria Steinem and was one of Gloria's closest allies and biggest inspirations. And the mm. great thing about Florence Kennedy was, and one of her biographers, I, I, I write about her a little bit in Untrue, one of her biographers said, you know, she sort of turned on its head America's horror about the angry black woman. Mm. And she um, really produced this really acute, necessary, biting cultural criticism through the quip and through humor. And one of the things that she's famous for saying was... Um, I don't understand why people would live in a bathroom just because they have to use it three times a day. That was her take on marriage and monogamy. Wow. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Three times a day is a lot. To pee. Uh, To have sex. Right. (laughs) (laughs) If that's what she's saying. (laughs) I, I think she was basically trying to say you don't have to be married to have sex. Right. So why are we doing it this way? Right. Anyway, Trump is going to push us to find our new 
Florence Kennedy's and Gloria Steinem. I'll tell you what, Stormy Daniels is doing a pretty nice job at the moment. We have some, we have some women out there, um, really communicating. Uh, you know, our most sort of salient, pointed, important social criticism right now. Yeah, and I. I think it, the women who started Black Lives Matter were so brilliant in the way they used social media to do it. And I think the kids um, Park from Land. Parkland yeah. uh, are so amazing in how natural, mm. in a way, their intersectional work is. Mm. Um, I've been thinking about that a lot. Um, those kids, how what they basically showed all of us that we didn't really get before is that this is everybody's issue. You can say that gun yeah. control is a feminist issue and you can talk mm. about the data about how women tend to be victims mm. of violent crime committed by the men in their lives, the men they live with, the men they had domestic children with. Abusers domestic abusers. Domestic abusers. Definitely not have that. access. We can talk about how um, gun control is a racial issue because mm. people of color find themselves on the die more often um, from gun violence. Um, these kids made it feel so logical to people that this was everybody's issue. Do you read Dahlia Lithwick or Lethwick on Slate? She's the legal oh, journalist. Sometimes I do. Yeah. She's on MSNBC occasionally, mm-hmm. and Rachel Maddow sometimes. Right. She's great. She's really yeah. she's very very smart. She wrote a piece about that. Um, the Parkland thing and she said her her point was this could not have been scripted and of course they're getting accused of being shaped and used by different Mm -hmm. you know um, powers that be but her point was like these kids don't give a damn about these like mainstream narratives that are on they don't even watch conventional television you know they're they're not part of this conversation right. that we're all sort of superimposing on them they're they value unscripted authentic non-prepackaged communication right and that that's as a podcaster i mm-hmm. resonated with that because right. i think that's what makes podcasting interesting People listening to this are like, it's not edited. They know that we're just sitting here. I'll edit out that bad joke, but that's <laughs> that's, that's the only I thing. I triple dare you to leave that joke in. I'll leave it in. It's your reputation. I'm worried about not mine. I don't give my have no reputation. Um, you know, okay, this is a complete tangent, but uh-huh. I don't know if you're going to leave that joke in or not. But one of the people that I talked to that I interviewed from Untrue is this incredible porn scholar Mm. named Marae Miller-Young. And she writes about, um, you know, how black entertainment actresses earn half to a third of what um, white adult entertainment actresses earn. She does these brilliant close readings um, of... um, pornographic movies i don't know what the term is um and videos you know she she does close readings about the um black actresses performances and how they're often kind of subverting the script that they're supposed to be reading and anyway she's really impressive and one of the things that she's writing about now is 
hot wifing and the cuckold's lifestyle, and she's writing about uh, racial politics therein and the fixation on um, the big black cock, which she calls BBC, um, and also about mandingo parties, right, which are these hot wifing parties or cuckold lifestyle parties um, where the mostly um, white people into these lifestyles um, want black men um, to be part of the party. And one of the things that she is writing about is how these black men, instead of being paid, have to pay um, to to go to these parties. Mm. Um, so she's one of the women I write about in On True who's just really changing up our cultural narrative about about female sexuality and sexuality and showing, you know, that you really can't think it through without doing it in an intersectional way and talking about race too. Um, so, you know, I see her work and what... Um, the, the Parkland kids are doing in a weird way hmm. um, as connected. Yeah. Interesting. We're, your husband is either already here or about to be here. So yeah. let's, I got to go endless, because, you know, because your, your owner is he, coming. He's, he's watching. He's, <laughs> <laughs> um, I love him. He, he wanted me to write this book more than anyone. Oh, good. Good. Um, this is like maybe a third as long as a normal podcast. Aww. So will you promise to follow up? Oh, uh, hell yes. I'm coming back when my when my book comes out. Right. So it's called Untrue. You can pre-order it now. Is yeah, that correct? On Amazon? Yeah, and please do. I don't know if there are other online bookstores these know, days they or exist? if they've driven them Does all out of business. Is there any place else? <laughs> is there any other grocery store, bookstore, yeah. any kind of store besides Amazon anymore? Yeah, I know. It's amazing. Anyway, it's called Untrue. My guest is Wednesday Martin. She's an instant New York Times bestseller. I know you are, but what am I? Chris, thank you for having me. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Wednesday. It was pretty brief, but we'll we'll uh, cover a lot more material next time. Not more ground next time we get together. Uh, all right. So the intro music is by Basin and Range. The song is called Bright Side of the Sun. It's just a little snippet of that song. You can check out the whole thing at basinandrange.bandcamp.com and the rest of their music, which is cool. I think they're a Portland-based band, actually. Uh, what else? The Amazon affiliate link leads to a small percentage of what you spend getting kicked back to me. Funds which in no way imply that Amazon supports this podcast in any way. Uh, and that works if you're in the U.S., the U.K., or Canada. Thank you. The link is on my website, tangentiallyspeaking.com. You'll see it there. If you're on a computer, it's on the right margin. If you're on a phone, you just have to scroll down to the bottom. Uh, there's a conversation about uh, this podcast and what a douchebag I am on Reddit. You can just go to Reddit and look for tangentially speaking and you'll find that community it's actually a really nice online community there um i've seen a bunch of you know conversations that sort of get into dispute territory um but i've yet to see one devolve into the sort of online bullshit that you often see these people are actually really cool and i like to engage with them because you know, I'll see like someone will disagree and the other person will say something outlandish like, 
You know, I never thought of it that way. Thanks for pointing that out to me. And the other person will say, hey, yeah, thanks. I learned a lot from this conversation as well. I hope things are going well in your life. It's like, holy shit, these are like actually nice people online even. So if you want to meet some nice people online and have intelligent conversations and maybe meet up with someone from your town or wherever the hell you are, your your zone, check out the Tangentially Speaking subreddit. Um, if you don't understand Reddit, <laughs> don't bother because it's fucking confusing. I don't understand it either. But I think everyone under like 35 probably, there's some genetic thing. They all get it. Uh, if you want a t-shirt, Tangentially Speaking, Sex at Dawn, Civilized to Death, uh, Paleo Modern, there are a whole bunch of different t-shirts my mom's got in the garage. Just go to tangentiallyspeaking.com and check them out. Order some. She just found a whole bunch of XXL Civilized to Death shirts. So if you're a big man and you are like, fuck, there are no double XLs, well, there are. I think she found like 37 of them in a box that she didn't know were there. So suddenly they've appeared on the website. Um, so if you're a big man and you want a Civilized to Death shirt, now's your chance. Uh, if you want anything else from shoredesigntshirts.com, use the discount code CTD, as in Civilized to Death, and you'll get 20% off your entire order. And also, they'll see that people from this podcast actually do come to their website and buy stuff so maybe they'll keep giving us sweetheart deals on those shirts all right i think that's pretty much it this final song as always is called smoke alarm it's by the great carcy blanton who you can find online at carcyblanton.com she's always on tour playing somewhere Uh, if you get a chance to see her perform live it is a transformative experience Thanks for listening to this podcast and supporting my ridiculously strange lifestyle. Here's to you, Bennett and Justin. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you. Just because I want to What's the difference if you turn away I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Thinking about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation Wondering what they're gonna say When everyone you've ever known Is headed for a headstone Doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up but give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Thinking about a reputation
it's a big deal if you want to be free say what you want to feel spend the night with me i'm gonna take you up in my arms and if we must go down we'll go singing to the smoke alarms we'll dance into the ground